how do the Swiss do it? Their landlocked mashup of four official languages separated by Europe's tallest mountains somehow remains one of the most stable and affluent countries in the world. And so there's really nothing holding the country together apart from the fact that the people want to be a country together. And that has always been the case. And that's roughly what makes Switzerland succeed. Author Dickon Buse lets us in on how the Swiss have managed to build a prosperous, multicultural nation that stands apart from the rest of Europe. Regional differences in Italy make for a fertile environment for the arts. Naples and Rome are only a couple of hour drive away from each other, but they're two different worlds when it comes to music. And what sets the Welsh apart from the rest of Britain? So the Welsh were never understood linguistically. They were different from the Anglo-Saxons. They were foreigners. Celebrate the differences that color our world in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Switzerland can be a hard country for outsiders to figure out. It has four official languages and refuses to join its neighbors in being part of the European Union. But it also has one of the healthiest economies and best-governed societies of any small country. Best-selling British author Dickon Buse figures that Switzerland is a country that probably shouldn't really exist. We'll chat with him in just a bit about why he moved there and what he's discovered that really makes the Swiss tick. Travelers in Great Britain know that a weekend in Wales is often just the ticket. It's easy to reach from London and like nothing else in the British Isles. A Welsh guide joins us a little later in the hour to share what makes his native land so appealing. When you think about what makes Italy such a special place, the first things that come to my mind are its incredible masterpieces of art, historic architecture, Roman history, and great local cuisine. It's all part of everyday life for the average Italian. Music is another important component that feeds the Italian soul. Besides those dramatic opera arias, Italy also boasts a fascinating world of regional traditional folk music. Musician David Tordi joined us recently on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about settling into married life in Orvieto with his American wife. He's back with us today to introduce us to the regional folk music scene in Italy. David, good to have you back. Thank you, Rick. Why is it when I travel around Europe that I find more folk music in a place like Ireland and in Italy? Is there folk music hiding out in Italy that travelers can encounter? Yes, there is a lot. Mostly uh, why you find Irish music and, and Scandinavian music and you don't really find national Italian music yet is because we're a very new country and we're still very, very divided and uh, still very diverse. So there are many subcultures. And the most popular one in the world is the Neapolitan music, you know, the traditional... So different Nepal- subcultures within Italian. So yes. you've got uh, Neapolitan, that would be the word? Yeah, Napolitana. And, and how would that distinguish itself from another region of Italy? First of all, Neapolitan music has a, a large influence coming from the Arab music oh. and the Northern African music, as well as the Spanish music. But if you go to Milan, for example, so if you look at the Milan traditional music, we don't find that at all. We find more influence from the northerners. We from call the Alps. Them. Yeah, the, the Germans. Alps and the Germans right. and the French. All right. Well, you've got a guitar in your lap there. Is, there. is there a way to demonstrate a little bit of the difference between the Milano school in the north and the Neapolitan school in the south? Sure. Uh, maybe uh, we can do a better, even a better example because uh, Naples and Rome are only a couple of hour drive away from each other. Okay. But they're two different worlds when it comes to music. A very famous Neapolitan song is O Sordato Namurato that's been sung all over the world that goes like this. Stai lontana da stu core A te volo gu pensiero Niente voglio, niente spero che tenete sempre a fianco a me. So it goes very melodic, but very sad, but at the same time very charming. Is that similar to Amalfi Coast in Sorrento? Yes. Because as you were playing, I've only been to a few Italian musical events like this, but in Sorrento there's a wonderful folk evening, and I was right there. Yes, this is... 
the Neapolitan rhythm. Nice. You can dance yeah. without a drum. Perfect. So yeah. we can find that in Naples and down, down on Malfi Coast, Sorrento, Positano. Oh, Take yeah. us uh, two hours north to Rome, and how would the music change? Oh, yeah. You know, Rome is a lot of... There's less sadness and more... Uh, it's more about the jokes. The Romans love to joke and make fun with each other. And there's a song that I, I love that's called Tanto Pe Canta. Tanto Pe Canta in Roman dialect means, and this tells it all, just to sing it, you know. It doesn't matter what happens, we just sing it, you know. It doesn't matter what you have in life as long as you have a good pair of shoes and you can visit the world with those shoes, that's it. Health, shoes and a guitar and you can see the world. E quando il sole scende e muore, me sento un cuore cantatore. La voce è poca mantonata, non basta fasta serenata, ma solamente a far maniera de dame insonia prima sera. And here the dreams comes. Tanto pe canta perché me sento un friccicone il cuore Tanto pe sogna perché nel petto me ce naschi in fiore Fiore dell'illà che mi riporti verso il primo amore E sospirava le canzoni mie e mi rintonto l'iva de bugie our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Italian musician David Tordi. David plays and sings with an acoustic guitar trio called Bartender. Their website is bartendersound.com. So, David, we've covered Neapolitan from Naples. Mm-hmm. We've gone up to Rome. Share with us an, another uh, a school of music in Italy. Sure. Another very, very famous, one of the best, in my opinion, is the school from Genova. Genoa traditional music comes from a, a very old tradition of fishermen because Genoa is, it still is, but it used to be one of the most important harbors in Europe. The biggest representative of music from Genoa is Fabrizio De André, who passed away in 1997, who recreated, re-elaborated very old traditional uh, Genoa music in an album called Creusa de Ma, which is all written in ancient Genoa dialect. And I'll give you a little example. Umbre de muri, muri de mane, donde ne veni dove le cane, densi tu duva luna se mostrano, e a netona puntu cutelo a gua, e a montala se o gheresto dio, o diavolo en sei se che ha fatto niu, e nisciurtimo da ma pesci o gaio se daudria, a fontana di cumbi intaccate pria. Hey, and hey, hey, and hey, hey, and and that's actually the Genovese dialect? Yes, this is Genovese dialect, which is an, an actual language. How different is that from the Italian that you speak every day? Oh. 75% not understandable. So it's tough for an language. Italian to understand that. And that, that would be the fisherman culture yes. in the great city of Genova. Marseille is just over the border in France, and it's got that sort of roughness and exactly. that seafaring heritage. Yeah. We've heard three different schools. Is there another school that you might share? Let's say um, the school from Milan. Milano. School so now Milano. we're going farther north, and this yeah. is up in the shadow of the Alps, where you even have a little bit of that Teutonic or German character yes. coming in. Like this one. That's called Azzurro, that was written by Paolo Conte, but made famous by Adriano Celentano. Cerco l'estate tutto l'anno, e all'improvviso, eccola qua. Lei è partita per le spiagge, e sono solo qua giù in città. Sento volare sopra i tetti un aeroplano che se ne va. 
azzurro il pomeriggio è troppo azzurro e lungo per me ma accorgo di non avere più risorse senza di te e allora io quasi quasi prendo il treno e vengo vengo da te ma il treno dei desideri Lovely. Thank you so much. We've been talking with David Tordi about Italian music. David's band is Bartender. The website's bartendersound.com. Now, David, this is so enticing. How can we help our listeners who are going to Italy connect with this kind of music? Where would you go to hear this music in these different cities? So, um, it's very easy to find traditional music in places like Naples and Sicily. We haven't talked about Sicilian music, which is a wonderful school. But if you go to local pubs, cafeterias or uh, bars, or sometimes restaurants in Naples, there's going to be traditional live music. And Naples is famous for their mandolin, mandolino napoletano, so the mandolin style. And then Sicily is famous for a lot of uh, northern African instruments as well. I love Sicily. Can you demonstrate a little bit of the uh, Sicilian school of music in Italy? Sicilian is um, famous for being probably... The most melancholy, uh, melancholy, melancholy, yeah, yeah. melancholy uh, Italian music. Sicily is an island, so mm-hmm. as any other island is a world by itself. So there's one Sicilian song that I love that's very traditional. It's an old one. It's over a hundred years old, and it's. Vettina grossa su una punta du Fui curioso e ci voglio spiare E da mare spugnia con gran dolore Mori senza auto cudo campani Mori senza auto cudo campani I sense a little more of that Mediterranean wistfulness and a little bit of Portuguese also. Yes. There's that Portuguese uh, liltingness and jauntiness. This is a song about somebody who realized that God really old in his life and sees uh, the skull of a dead person uh, coming out of this rock and starts talking to the skull saying, look at that, I just blink my eyes and I'm I'm done. I'm, I'm very old and I have so many regrets in life and... And that's the whole spirit. Sicily is very about, it's a lot about the meaning of life. And it comes across in the traditional music, in the folk music. Yes. David Torti, that's so fun to be able to travel through Italy via the music of the regions. It pulls it all together. It's another celebration of Italian culture. Mille grazie. Grazie a te, Rick. Ma tu vieni, non aspettare ancora. Vieni adesso finché primavera. You can learn more about David Tordi's music on his band's website. That's bartendersound.com. Up next, we head into the mountains to the land famous for its cheese, chocolates, neutrality, and Heidi. Dick and Buse takes us inside the handcrafted precision of life in Switzerland in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
When you mention Switzerland, it probably evokes a lot of cliches. You know, watches, mountains, banks, tidiness, neutrality, cheese with holes in it. English travel writer Dickon Buse claims that he moved to Switzerland for the chocolate. He writes eloquently about the delights and contradictions of Europe's landlocked island in his book called Swiss Watching, Inside the Land of Milk and Money. Dickon, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You write in your book that uh, Switzerland is a country that, that shouldn't really exist. What did you mean by that? Well, it's at the center of Europe, both literally and geographically. It's surrounded by the European Union, but isn't a member. But it has these divisions which in other countries would probably have ripped them apart over the centuries, but Switzerland has survived over 700 years. There's four different languages. There's Protestant and Catholic. There's a big division between town and country. And because of the landscape, every community grew up individually. So it was very often that if you lived in one valley, you didn't see your neighbors from the next valley for six months of the year because they were so isolated by the mountains and the snow. And so there's really nothing holding the country together apart from the fact that the people want to be a country together. And that has always been the case. And that's roughly what makes Switzerland succeed. I mean, there's a romantic story about the birth of Switzerland where these mountain tribes people got together in a, on a common meadow and just for the love of freedom and, and maybe the security of banding together against all those other people outside of the Alps, really uh, founded the whole notion of Switzerland back when it was just, wasn't that just three cantons, three states instead of the 20 or whatever they have today? It was the first three cantons, which are roughly equivalent to states, although much, much smaller. Uh, now there are 26. Not a lot is known about that birth of Switzerland. Some is myth, some is history. But essentially, these three cantons wanted to stand up to the big power in those days was the Habsburgs, the Austrians. Mm -hmm. And so they swore an oath of allegiance to come to each other's aid and to provide security for each other. And that has been the bedrock of Switzerland ever since. It's always been us against them, whether the them is the Habsburgs or the Nazis or the European Union. And it's always been, let's work together to make ourselves stronger and always put the people first. So Switzerland has never had an emperor or a king or a president with much power or a general in charge. It's always been the people. In their constitution, don't they have a deal where the, the president is revolving every six months and people hardly know who the president is at any given time? Yes, the government itself is a seven-member government made up of the five main parties. It's a permanent coalition and no one member of the government has more power than the other. One is elected every year to be the titular president, but it's really there to shake hands and make speeches because <laughs> they realize they have to have someone. But actually, it's government by committee. No one party, no one person is ever in control or ever has been in control. It's always been a search for consensus rather than confrontation. It's slow. Change doesn't happen quickly. Women didn't get the vote till 1971. But it means that it's very stable and always looking for the majority viewpoint. Does it change from canton to canton? Is there a mechanism where some places can be more progressive? Because there's a lot of hard issues they're dealing with today where I would imagine it's hard to get countrywide consensus. There are some issues that are national. So at a federal level, women got the vote in 1971. But at a canton level, cantons could choose. And so the first canton was 1959, but the last was Appenzell 1991. 1991? So women could not vote in 1990 in Appenzell. Aren't there jokes within Switzerland about Appenzell being sort of behind the times? <laughs> well, they are the butt of many jokes, not just because of that, because it's a very traditional, very Catholic, very conservative canton. It's one of the cantons where the parliament and referendums are still decided in person, in the town square. All the voters get together in what's called a Landsgemeinde, and by a show of hands, they pass or reject referendum proposals or elect the government. So it's very traditional. Each family could raise one sword. Is that the idea? Well, each voter and the male, it was only male voters could vote and the head of the household. So the, the father had a sword and he would pass it on to his son when he was of age. So they would gather together on those squares yeah. and, and the yeah. mayor or whatever would say, we need to know, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And they would count the swords. Yes. And everyone has a right to say whatever they want. So the debate is not over until the last person has got up onto the podium and had a say. Wow. So it is it is sort of pure democracy. But there's also a bit of peer pressure, because if you're standing there with all your neighbors, work colleagues, friends and, and not friends, people you don't like, they can see exactly how you vote on every issue, hmm. whether that's lowering the uh, age of consent or whether that's having shopping on Sundays or whether it's joining the United Nations. 
There is no secrecy at all. And so when I went and stood on the edge and watched this, it was very interesting for me. It was really democratic process in action. But I just felt on some social liberal issues, you could be pressured into changing your vote, I think, by mm. everyone standing around you and seeing how you vote. The one I saw was they wanted to ban naked hiking. Uh, <laughs> so who's in favor very... of, of naked hiking? Raise your sword. Well, exactly. So even if you're not in favor of doing it for yourself, you might be in favor of letting other people do whatever they want. But all if right. your, all your neighbors are there voting against naked hiking, are you going to be brave enough to raise your hand and everyone see that you're this wishy-washy liberal who likes to walk around in the altogether? We're talking about naked hiking in Switzerland right now, and Dick and Buse is our guide. He's uh, written a book called Swiss Watching. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Dickon, when you think about Switzerland, uh, and it's so divided, obviously it's because of the uh, ruggedness of the terrain. If you think about, you've even got cultural divides in Switzerland separated by those mountains, the romantic countries to the south, you know, the French and the Germans, and even a little enclave of people nestled up in the mountains whose language goes directly back to ancient Roman times. Talk about the four language groups just for a minute to give us a context here in little Switzerland. The biggest language group is certainly German, and that comes in two forms. That comes in what's called High German, which is the written language, the official language of the country, and that's the German you would hear in Germany. But the spoken language in the street is a multitude of dialects, so Bernese German is slightly different from Zurich German or from Basel German, but they're relatively understandable to each other. They make up 65% of the country, and it's mainly Protestant, some Catholic areas as well, like Lucerne. To the west of that, across what is called the Röstigraben, which is the invisible divide between German-speaking part and French-speaking part. Rösti is this dish of fried potatoes that is very popular in the German-speaking part. And so the French don't eat it as much. So this Rösti divide is a psychological divide. The French-speaking part is much smaller. It's only about 20% of the population, but includes two big cities, Lausanne and Geneva. And they have a little bit of a minority complex because they're obviously the biggest minority, but they definitely don't want to be French. They don't want to be part of France. They definitely want to stay part of Switzerland. And this language divide manifests itself in many ways. One is political. The French-speaking part tends to be slightly more liberal, slightly more left-wing, definitely more pro-European. And you get a Rush de Graben in political votes as well. And also, the French speakers are a little bit more open. They tend to drink wine at lunchtime, for instance, or will be a little bit more friendly to outsiders. Hmm. In the south, you have one canton, Ticino, which is Italian-speaking, and that is south of the Alps. It is cut off from the rest of the country. It is the only part that is majority Italian-speaking. And again, they have a similar situation to the French speakers in that they don't want to be Italy, they don't want to be Italian, but they definitely feel ignored and overlooked by the German speakers because they make up only 6% of the population. But they would rather be ignored by the German speakers than be totally forgotten by the government in Rome. Huh. So as a small minority within a small country, they do have a voice. And they got and the tiny, what is the it? The tiny little bit. Yeah. And you're lucky if you hear anyone speaking <laughs> Romance in the streets at all. Romance is this interesting dialect or language which is a direct descendant from latin and it sounds sometimes a little bit like a mix of italian and german and it is only found in graubunden the most eastern canton about 35 to 40,000 native speakers so about half a percent of the population huh. have it as their first language now that's half the number of people like me who live there and have english as their first language oh yeah so it is definitely a tiny language but it is protected a referendum created it as the fourth national language back in the 30s. And so if you live in Graubünden, you can get all your official documents in Romance. Romance is taught in the schools. There's a Romance radio station, Romance TV programs. So it is a and living it, language still. It is a living language. This is the area of uh, San Moritz, we would know. Uh, San Moritz is yes, San Moritz or Davos, where the mm. World Economic Forum is. So the southeastern portion of the country, very high mountain country. Right. Very beautiful. Oh, really yeah. Really beautiful. Now, so if you were French or Italian speaking, you'd go, well, you, we've got my language on the, on the currency, but I'm not feeling fairly treated and dominated by aggressive Germans. What would one, one major gripe that the French and the Italians might have together against the 65% German majority of Switzerland? The biggest gripe, and this is one of the biggest political issues at the moment in Switzerland, is if you live in French or Italian speaking part, you learn German as the first language at school. If you live in the German-speaking part, you typically learn French 
as your first language after your own native language. But a lot of German-speaking cantons are switching to teaching English first because it's more useful. So Zurich, for instance, the most populous canton, now teaches English before French. Hmm. And that, that creates a lot of problems for national cohesion, mm-hmm. even, though, even though, like I learned French at school and then never used it. And so a lot of Swiss people, they have to learn another national language at school, but then probably never use it. But mm-hmm. it's important psychologically that they have learned one. Sure. Switching to English as first, because it's more useful for employment, more useful for the internet, watching films or whatever, mm-hmm. has created a big, a big political hot potato. Dick and Buse is our guide right now to Switzerland on Travel with Rick Steves. His book, Swiss Watching, is a bestseller in Britain. He also retraces the steps of the first ever Thomas Cook tour of the Alps. That's in his book called Slow Train to Switzerland. Dickon lives in Switzerland in Bern, and his website is dickonbuse.com. That's spelled D-I-C-C-O-N-B-E-W-E-S. John's calling in from Halstead in Pennsylvania. John, thanks for your call. Yes, thank you for taking my question. Uh, Dickon, I'm wondering, as an expat, what, if any, have been some of your biggest challenges assimilating into the Swiss culture? And then as a follow-up, specifically, what did you do to help bridge those cultural gaps? I think for me, the biggest challenge was getting to know Swiss people. My partner, he is Swiss, and so I do have a lot of Swiss friends, and so I had a natural advantage, but it's still hard. In the book, I liken Swiss people to coconuts. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean they're small, brown, and hairy. It means that they have this hard outer shell that really protects their privacy, and it can be difficult to break through that. It takes time and patience, and sometimes it feels like your neighbors or your co-workers aren't being that open and friendly, whereas, in fact, they're just respecting your privacy. But English speakers are used to people being a bit more open, a bit more friendly, a bit more forthcoming. And so that's probably the biggest challenge most expats, including me, face. And the way I got over it was to go to school and learn German. As soon as I could speak German, it got a lot easier because then you show that you're making an effort to try and integrate. You show that you're making an effort to try and get to know people on their own terms rather than to forcing them to speak the foreign language. Do people call you by your last name? A lot of people do, but generally Switzerland is quite a formal society. You use last names and the formal form of you, mm-hmm. uh, which in German is sie or in French is vous, and you do that until you get to know someone. And so with strangers or with people who are older than you or more important than you, so in a business meeting, for instance, you would always use last names and the formal form of you. It's never a case of first names first. You never get waitresses coming up and saying, hi, I'm Chelsea, I'm your waitress this evening. That's just much too personal for Swiss people. So on the radio, when I do interviews and when I give presentations, even with some of my neighbors who I don't see that often, I'm still on last name terms. Imagine that, John. (laughs) Thank you. That's very insightful. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call, John. You're welcome. You bet. And Jennifer's calling from San Francisco. Yes, hello. Um, An English friend of mine, like you, also lives in Switzerland, or as, as he calls it, the land of milk and money. Um, and um, he and some other French friends of mine say often that Switzerland is the place where, where nothing happens. They find it boring, you know, apart from the natural setting. They say there's not much going on. I was curious if you wanted to uh, contradict that notion or, or add some, some different perspective to it. I think it depends on your definition of boring. I lived in London 17 years, so obviously moving to Bern, the capital, but it's it's a small city, 130,000 people, was a different setup, but I don't find it boring at all. I think Switzerland has a wonderful multicultural atmosphere because of its position at the crossroads of Europe, because 25% of the population are not actually Swiss. So in Bern, for instance, we have theatre, we have open-air opera, we have buskers festivals, You can go swimming in the river, and of course the mountains are on the doorstep. I can't imagine any city in Britain of that size which would have as much going on. We were just there for Carnival, too, in Lucerne. It was crazy. Carnival was Carnival is crazy, and yeah, you'd see the Swiss really letting their hair down, getting drunk in the street, which you never normally see at any other time of year, throwing confetti at each other, and talking to strangers, even, with a smile on their faces. It's that wild. Well, maybe you need to have that wildness when everything else is so orderly. I mean, life is like a jukebox, and then once in a while you can let loose. Yeah, and I think the the benefit of Switzerland is that you know everything is going to work. You know yeah. if people say they're going to do what they do, they do it. Some people find that boring. I find that quite reassuring that I can rely on everyone that I talk to or work with. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Thank you. 
like Jennifer just noted, it's the land of milk and money. And when, exactly. you, when you think about the money, of course, that's a fundamental part of the Swiss economy, isn't it? Just banking. I understand people can, when they put their money in Switzerland, when all the fees are counted up and so on, they get negative interest for the privilege of storing their money in Switzerland. Is that still the case? At the moment it is because the Swiss franc is so strong compared to the euro, the dollar, the pound. So the national bank does have negative interest. Luckily, at the moment, if you're a normal person like me, it doesn't affect your bank account. It only affects the super rich or corporations. And the Swiss economy is immensely strong. If that carries on, then it might trickle down to the people in the street. William emailed us from Miami. He writes, um, I used to have a Swiss bank account, which gave me a good excuse to visit this lovely country where my grandfather was born. But three years ago, I was told by my bank that I must remove my money and that they'd no longer be taking deposits from Americans. Is Switzerland now being pressured to uh, cooperate with foreign countries? And if so, why now? Yeah, what is the news? Because I know in the United States, you know, clearly there's a lot of people putting their money in Switzerland for uh, reasons to get around taxes or, or other clever tricks. Is that less possible now? It's far less possible, especially if you're American. The American tax authorities and government introduced something a couple of years ago called FATCA, which basically means that if you live abroad, if you live in Switzerland, all your bank accounts and the bank accounts of your partner, whether that's your life partner or your business partner, are also open to inspection by the IRS. And you have to go back 10 years in terms of what you have to produce. And so the Swiss have tried to clean up their act. They did have a reputation for accepting money from anyone for anything. That is now no longer the case. And if you are American, it is more difficult. I have my neighbor downstairs is dual national American and Swiss. She has given up her American citizenship, has had to close her bank accounts in America and is now totally Swiss because of the difficulties of working with the IRS here, but also the difficulties of banks not wanting to have American customers because the banks themselves are open to investigation. Anyone, any bank employee working on an American account is open to investigation. And most people are hiding their money in a Swiss bank account to avoid paying taxes in America, right? Well, not everyone. I mean, there are 40,000 or so Americans who live and work in Switzerland full time. Right. So they're not trying to hide their money from anyone okay. because they're paying tax in Switzerland. But they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of this investigation. Ah. Of course, it's all to do with people trying to hide money overseas. But if they want to hide money overseas, they can do it in the Cayman Islands and they don't have to go to Switzerland. This is what the Swiss find hypocritical about all this is that Switzerland is not the only place where you can stash money. And the Americans tend to focus on Switzerland because it's an easy target, because it's the most well-known one. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a fascinating discussion about Switzerland with Dickon Buse, and his book is Swiss Watching, Inside the Land of Milk and Money. Dickon, thanks so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Best wishes with your work in Switzerland. Thanks so much. You have a nice time in For another angle on his adopted home country, Dickon Views looks for touches of Switzerland around America. You can learn about that and lots more on his website, dickenviews.com. Up next, we're side-tripping to Wales for a weekend with Welsh tour guide Martin Delandovitz. Martin takes your calls at 877-333-7425 in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Just a two-hour train ride from London takes you to a world apart. Rugged mountains and coastlines, crumbling castles galore and a language that sounds like nothing else on earth. I'm talking about Wales, of course, and we're joined now by tour guide and Welshman Martin Delandovitz to discuss the unique pleasures of a weekend getaway to his home turf in Wales. Martin, every time you join us, it's like a quick trip to Wales. Thanks so much for being here again. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Millions of people go to England. It's one of the most popular destinations in Europe, and a lot of them neglect to even consider Wales, and that's what I want to talk about right now. Martin, talk just about the practicalities. If you're going to Stratford for your Shakespeare fix, if you're going to the Cotswolds, if you're going to London, how tough is it to get to Wales? It's very easy. I mean, traveling within Wales from north to south isn't that good. Basically, if you want to do it by train, you have to go into England and go south in England and then go back into Wales. But mm -hmm. traveling from England, let's say, you have the M4 that goes straight into Wales from London. Mm -hmm. And in the north, you have uh, what is beautifully known as the A55 Expressway. And you have trains that go in, you have buses that go in. It's very easy and quick to get into Wales from the south of England or indeed from the north. So in the south, you've got Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales and was an has long been an industrial base, so it would be logical that it has a good infrastructure connection with yeah. London. 
And then in the north, before the age of affordable airfare, it was just the highway to Dublin. And Dublin was the second city of the British Empire. Mm. And the big road and all the fancy bridges had to go through Wales to get you from London over to Dublin. Yes, yes. Talk about the infrastructure of of empire in the north of Wales. In the north, we had uh, the railways came back in the um, 1850s. George and Robert Stevenson, the father and son, the, the fathers of the railway. So the railway came before the road was improved, and now we have the the road. Thomas Telford, again in the 1850s, built the um, the A5 that linked London to Holyhead, the port from which you travel to Dublin. Yes. And that bridge is incredible. The, the, the chain suspension bridge. Is, yeah. Isn't it beautiful? It yes. connects Wales with Holyhead, the island. Yeah, the, yeah. I, the island of Anglesey. And yeah. It's a marvel of engineering, yes. Along the way, you've got... Uh, Llandudlo, which was an escape for working-class people, sort of a, yeah. the Blackpool of Wales. Well, Llandudno, I've got to say, is different to Blackpool, and I'm not denigrating Blackpool in the least, in that Llandudno has kept itself genteel. It doesn't have amusement arcades. It is genteel. It is genteel. I've been to both, and i got to say, I always wanted people to go to Blackpool in England because it's earthy, it's unpretentious, it's, it's sort of like Coney Island. Yes, yes. But now it's become to me, almost depressing. It's just low class. It's crude. A bunch of hen parties and stag parties and drunk young people throwing up. And I just thought, these are people who can't afford to fly to southern Spain. But it is cheaper to go to Spain than it is to go to Blackpool. It's cheaper now to go it's to cheap. Spain. So maybe the Blackpool cheaper. is struggling. So that's the, sort of the Coney Island and the unfortunate today. But when we think of the Coney Island of Wales, Llandudlo, it does have that gentility. It, it, yes, it's avoided that And I'm not saying it's tried to avoid, but it's kept itself genteel. And it's a nice resort. People still walk. There's still a band that plays on the promenade. It has a great home. It has a lot of attraction. You have the Long Pier? Yeah. And this was in a day when people wanted to go to sea, but they really didn't want to get on a boat, I think. And you could just walk out there and be at sea. You could feel the fresh air. I think doctors would prescribe a little fresh sea breeze. Absolutely. And uh, North Wales prospered from that. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're joined by Welsh tour guide Martin Delandovitz. He lives in Carnarvon in the north of Wales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Sue's calling in from Lombard in Illinois. Hi, Sue. Thanks, Rick. I traveled to Wales years ago and was able to take the Brit Rail into Cardiff, but I noticed train service is not what it once was. So how easy would it be to get to a place like St. David's or Fishguard from Cardiff? without having a car. So those are the far southwest tip of Wales, right beyond Cardiff. Yes, it's a beautiful coastline there. Right. Well, Fishguard is quite easy to get to. It, it goes by train. And the key to traveling in Wales is always get yourself a timetable. Don't just turn up and hope a train or a bus is going to turn mm. up. Uh, get yourself a timetable, and then travel is very, very easy. Out to St. David's, you're looking more at bus to get into St. David's itself. But it's a trip very well worth making of all the four cathedral cities of Wales, the traditional four cathedrals, such as St. David's, is, I think, the outstanding church. Beautiful. So are you planning a trip there? We plan on going back to Wales uh, in 2016. Have you been to north and south? I've been to Clendudno and I've been to Langothlin, but those have been actually on bus tours. I actually did St. David's many, many years ago uh, using Brit Rail train tabs, and then we hiked the coast path down there. Oh, lovely. You know, for years, I was always going from London to Ireland, and it was a beautiful excuse to enjoy a little bit of Wales on the way. And uh, now, when people go to Ireland from London, they fly because it's actually cheaper than taking the train or the bus. Consequently, fewer people are crossing Wales in order to get to Dublin, and that means we have to make a point to go to Wales. And I would imagine that's changed tourism a little bit in Wales. It hasn't, it hasn't. But I I do think... um a trip to Wales is well worthwhile. We've just been talking now about St. David's, the whole of that South Wales coastal mm-hmm. strip, and a goodly bit inland. There's some wonderful things to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, the coast itself is beautiful. But the countryside... How, how would you characterize the difference? Because I've always thought the north is the most interesting. It's got the most sightseeing. Mm. Is there more drama in the south? Is there more uh, scenery? Or what distinguishes the south from the north? How would you choose if you only have three days and you want to do one or the other? Oh, gosh. I really couldn't answer that properly. This, the North is noted for its, its majestic castles built at the order of Edward I and for its rugged mountains mm. and for its beautiful coastline. Now, the South is much more gentle. Mm. It fell prey to Norman invasion before the North ah. uh, because the land is better. They wanted it So it's it more, more civilized. It is more gentle. More gentle. More gentle. <laughs> and so what you see down there is richer. The land is richer than is that of North yeah. Wales. 
That's interesting. Now that you mention it, that does make sense. It's more developed as the Normans incorporated the South into their realm more than the North. Is that the idea? Yes. All yes, right. they did. There was more to gain, and so they took it yeah. faster. And the wealth of the land is seen in what's there. Sue, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick and Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Tessa's calling in from Portland in Oregon. Tessa, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks so much. Um, I was a part of a Fulbright teacher exchange two school years ago and lived in northern England. And during all of the half-term holidays and end-of-term holidays, uh, one of my girlfriends and I took off on road trips. And so we did a one-week road trip to Wales for the May half-term holiday and absolutely fell in love with it. What did you like so much about it? Oh, my gosh, it's just beautiful. We started in the south, and then we went and pretty much camped out in Snowdonia National Park for four days and took off and did little side trips. And we saw forests, and we went through. We actually took the train up Snowdon um, and went to the top, which was phenomenal. Just the whole view going up was amazing. And then getting to the top of the mountain and just seeing the countryside and seeing all the way to the sea was breathtaking. And the waterfalls were phenomenal as well, just to see the beauty and the majesty. And every single day we went to Swallow Falls, and every day the water level was a little bit different depending on if it had rained a little or a lot the night before. And so each day we went and visited it in the morning before we took off, and um, it looked different every day. What was your home base when you were touring in the north of Wales? <laughs> I can't really pronounce this, but I think it's called Betty Zikoet. Betelsakoid. You did pretty good, Tessa. Oh, <laughs> Say it again, Martin, in, in Welsh. Betelsakoid. What does that mean? It means the chapel or oratory in the trees. A chapel in the trees. Isn't that a charming little town, Tessa? Oh, it's lovely. We stayed at the little B&B just off of the main road, and everyone was super friendly and lovely. And Hey, Tessa, describe the uh, train ride up to the, the highest point in Wales, the top of Mount Snowdon. Oh, it was so much fun. Um, I think it's an old coal train, and so you're being pushed instead of being pulled, which was an experience in and of itself. And going up and seeing, you know, starting out with the trees and the hills, and then Mm. as you go up, you start to lose the trees, but you start to see all the hikers. And if we had had more time, we would have absolutely hiked it, but that's quite a feat. (laughs) And then just going up and seeing little streams coming down. It's a joyful thing, isn't it? It's a tiny little engine, a steam engine, and it's just chugging and chugging and huffing and puffing, and then you get to this wonderful king-of-the-mountain feeling on the summit, and you get a commanding 360-degree view of northern Wales. Yeah, it was amazing. And we had, when we got to the top, it was completely covered in cloud. So you stepped off the train into a cloud, and Uh, then it suddenly broke. Oh, it broke open. Oh, it was amazing. (laughs) So now, Tessa, there's a lot of castles in the north of Wales. It's famous for its, what's it called, the Ring of Iron, uh, Edward I. You know, that's how the English had their foothold in north, uh, north Wales. And I'm always reminding myself, these are not Welsh castles. These are English castles built to keep the Welsh people down. What castle did you enjoy of all the castles in the north? Well, I love them all, but my favorite has to be Penryn Castle, hmm. um, if I'm saying that right. <laughs> I've not been to that one. Why was that so good? I mean, just the people always are, of course, very lovely and everywhere you go, but we had some really great guides who were just stationed in different parts, and they told us a lot of the stories. And so we had, from the moment we bought our tickets at the door to the moment we left, we got stories left and right about why the castle was important and little details about the people who live there and they also have a um, ghost walk at night, which was great fun. Just it, it was very campy and fun and silly, but we got to go around at night with candles. And- I like those ghost walks. I mean, they are campy and fun, but it's entertainment, you know, and it's something fun to do for an hour and a half after dinner or whatever. Don't you think the guides in those castles bring the castles to life? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. They're not paid enough. <laughs> I just appreciate so much the guides in the castles, and I would just stress anybody going to these castles, anywhere in the British Isles, if there are local tours, Martin, don't they usually post when the tours are going to be? Yes, they do, yeah. yeah. And it would be included in the cost of the castle a lot of times? Sometimes is, sometimes isn't, but, yeah. um, but brings, I think it's it worthwhile. It brings it to life. Well, it, it not only brings it to life. You, know, you, you can buy a guidebook. Now, walking around a castle with a guidebook... Uh, you can't ask guidebook questions. Right. And if you read a book and walk around a castle, you're going to fall over. Plus, you guides are full of stories. They bring it to life. It's just hard to imagine what it was like living a thousand years ago in that castle. Hey, Tessa, thanks for your call. Thank you both, and thanks, Martin, for being such a great guide. Thank you, Tessa. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Delandovitz. We're talking about whales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Damon's on the phone from Scottsdale in Arizona. Damon, thanks for your call. Yeah, um, we're planning a trip to Cardiff for the uh, Doctor Who experience, and there's right. a BBC studio tour that's involved. 
do you recommend making Cardiff the home base for trips to other parts of Wales? I'm thinking just using mass transit to get away or uh, to make around Wales. Um, any advice you can offer would be great. Right, Cardiff is a wonderful city, uh, but don't forget it is a city. Now, not that far from Cardiff, you, you can go to, uh, oh gosh, Newport, beyond Newport, Caerleon, as they say down there, uh, C-A-E-R-L-E-O-N. It's a nice, quiet little town. It has Roman remains in it and so on. Um, Cardiff, yes, don't get me wrong, I think it's a wonderful city, but maybe a little further out of town is easier for you to, more relaxing possibly, than staying in the city. But Cardiff itself has an awful lot to offer. Cardiff uh, is a sort of a industrial age city, right? Yes and no. I mean, it, it was a coal port. I mean, South right. Wales prospered from coal, from iron, from steel, but uh, the Marcus of Butte in his day became the richest man in the world, and that was his port, Cardiff. But today it is the capital of Wales, and the architecture of the 19th century, the civic buildings in the centre, I, I think it's architecturally a lovely place. And yes, you can strike out from Cardiff and visit much of South I Wales. think it's worth a little time, but, but I don't think it's one of the great cities in the British Isles. I would say from Cardiff, you can side trip. There's Tintern Abbey, there's Tintern, Carefully yeah. Castle, St. Fagan's uh, National History Museum. Absolutely. Talk marvelous. about St. Fagan's, because I love these cultural open-air folk museums. That's right. I mean, the idea originated uh, in Sweden in the right. early 20th century. And what they do is they take buildings representative of the local building style of each part of Wales, literally take them apart and reassemble them at uh, St. Fagan's. So you have the architectural history of the whole of Wales represented there on one site, and I love going to that place. They teach Welsh culture so well. I remember you've got these row houses where the mine workers That's right, would, yes. And you've got these humble little two up and two down, isn't that a word, where mm. you have four rooms in the house, and yes. two little rooms in the basement and, uh, on the ground floor and two rooms upstairs, and they have like six of them in a row, and then each one is furnished in a different generation over the course of 100 years. Yes. Here's 1880, here's 1900, 1920, 1940, yes. and 1960. Yes. This is at St. Fagan's. So, you know, Damon, when you go to Cardiff, to me that's the number one side trip is to go to the uh, National Museum just out of outside of town, St. Fagan's. I mean, you mentioned Chepstow Castle and Tintern Abbey. I think Chepstow is one of the great castles of Britain. It's the oldest stone-built castle in Britain. Wow. I know. That's something. That's something. And Tintern Abbey is a very uh, romantic place, too, with its literary history. Yeah, it was Wordsworth and uh, Turner's painting. It's so much evocative history right that's there. Beautiful. in the, That's the southeast of Wales. Damon, you mentioned you're going to the Doctor Who experience. Exactly what do you expect to uh, enjoy there? Well, there's uh, studio set tours. Um, there's also some exhibitions. It's really for the kids. Uh, they want to go see uh, all things related to Doctor Who, and that seems to be the center of all of it. And where's that going to be? I think the Doctor Who experience, what I can tell is it faces the harbor. There's an actual building. In Cardiff. The, the, in Cardiff. The, the biggest itself, yeah. city in Wales on the south coast, yeah. All right. Hey, well, that sounds like a fun uh, experience for the whole family. Thanks for the advice. All right. Have a good time. Thanks. Jason's on the line from Austin in Texas. Jason, thanks for your call. Uh, hi, Rick. You're the best. Um, appreciate the opportunity to ask a question. Thanks. Um, so my question is, I often hear uh, jabs made uh, at the Welsh by uh, the Brits, and, you know, not being from over there, I have no idea what the basis for that is, if there is any basis, or if it's just, uh, you know, something that's been passed down and no one knows why anymore. So um, any insight on that would be uh, great. <laughs> Martin, defend yourself against these rude Englishmen that don't appreciate the Welsh. What are they complaining about? I don't know. Difference. Did you, did you know that Wales, this, this, is, this is the truth, Jason, Wales is, in fact, a Germanic word. And uh, you've got it in Walloon, you've got it in Wallachia. That's right. You've got it in Walnut, you've got it, and it means foreigner. So the Welsh oh. were never understood linguistically. They were different from the Anglo-Saxons. They were foreigners. So that uh, people are frightened of things they don't understand, which is why education is such a wonderful thing. So the poor Anglo-Saxons didn't understand the Welsh, so they were frightened of them. They had mountains, they had rain, and they had wind, and so uh, the Welsh there, horrible. But, do you know, um, I'm going to say this, and I, I'm sure that people in Wales and uh, in Scotland will uh, disagree possibly, but I'm going to say it's a family. Great Britain is a family, and like in all families, you get, uh, let's say, that family arguments or family differences are amongst the most bitter, and so that that may be the reason for it. And it's most of it's good-natured. I mean, were I to say to you... Jason, why do they bury English people 12 feet down? And the answer is because deep down they're really nice people. Uh, one could see that as being <laughs> racist. 
But in fact, it's just a bit of, you know, a slight dig in the ribs and and most of it uh, gets down to that. And the stories you hear about sheep aren't true. It is, <laughs> it, it, no, no, it is true that we have the greatest uh, sheep to people ratio in Europe. And yes, yes, uh, sheep are a great export from Wales, but uh, all the other stories aren't true. I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> there you go, Jason. Thanks for your call. And now we better understand the Welsh uh, vis-a-vis the English. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for your time. You bet. So, Martin, thank you so much for setting us straight on a few of these issues about Wales. I'm just so charmed uh, and in, sort of inspired by the Welsh language and the, just the love of the culture that shows itself through the language. I, I know in, in heaven they speak Welsh, don't they? That, that is, is, is said to be the language of heaven, but I, I'm sure a few other languages are spoken there too. Can we just close this interview if you can give us some sort of a blessing uh, in, your, in your native language? A blessing? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a welcome. Dwi'n siŵr os ti'n dweud i Gymru. Mi fyddwch chi bydd yna groeso mawr i chi yn Cymru. So come to Wales because it's a beautiful place where there'll be a great welcome for you. And I can assure our listeners they will enjoy that beautiful, warm Welsh welcome. Martin Glandovitz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to our colleagues at Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison for their help this week. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.